Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Dr. David Vago. David is a research director of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He also maintains an appointment as a research associate in the Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He has completed postdoctoral fellowships in the Department of Psychiatry at BWH, the Utah Center for Mind-Body Interactions within the University of Utah Medical School, and the Stuart T. Hauser Research Training Program in Biological and Social Psychiatry. David has previously held the position of Senior Research Coordinator for the Mind and Life Institute and is currently a Mind and Life Fellow, supporting the Mind and Life mission by advising on strategy and programs. He received his Bachelor's Degree in Brain and Cognitive Sciences in 1997 from the University of Rochester. In 2005, David received his PhD in Cognitive and Neural Sciences with a specialization in learning and memory from the Department of Psychology at the University of Utah. David's research interests broadly focus on utilizing translational models to identify and characterize neurobiological substrates mediating psychopathology to better predict outcomes and potential biologically-based diagnostic and therapeutic strategies for those suffering with mental illness. He aims to clarify adaptive mind-brain-body interactions and their therapeutic relevance in psychiatric settings. In this context, David has been specifically focusing on the study of mindfulness-based interventions in clinical settings and the basic cognitive and neuroscientific mechanisms by which mindfulness-based practices function. He has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, spoken at international conferences, and his research has been covered by mainstream news outlets such as Huffington Post, Boston Globe, and NPR, among others. David is an avid Vipassana Dzogchen meditation and Hatha Yoga practitioner and enjoys recreating in the outdoors. <laughs> so hello, David. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you. Yes. Um, I, I love that part of the bio because when people read it, it's like, uh, yes, and he's currently seeking friends if you'd like to recreate with him in the outdoors as well. He enjoys long walks recreating yes. in the outdoors. Well, am I pronouncing that correctly? Because I actually, when I first read this, I thought recreating. I don't think I've ever seen recreating um, used in that kind of a way. Yeah, I, I like using it in that context, and that's, that's how I pronounce it too, recreating. So what kind of a recreating do you get up to in the outdoors? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I spent uh, eight years in Utah, and I think my, I've just, my, my, my spirit, my soul just resides in the mountains. Um, you know, some people are sort of drawn to certain contexts, whether it's an urban environment or the ocean. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just a mountain guy, I think, by nature. And so I, as much as I can, I'll find myself, you know, traveling to Colorado or Utah or British Columbia and, spending as much time there as possible. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate the mountains as well. I'm from Washington State myself, so I grew up around the mountains. Yeah, beautiful. Um, So before we get into, you know, the fascinating work that you do in contemplative neuroscience, um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your own personal story and what has led you to this work that you do. Sure. Um, Well, I, I mean, I usually tie it back to uh, my first experience in a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat. Um, back when I was like 20 years old, um, I was a junior in college. I was taking some religion courses. I started getting very interested. I was always interested in the mind, but and in undergrad, I was both a cognitive neuroscience or biopsychology major 
and I was taking a lot of religion classes, and I was trying to find a way to integrate both of them together uh, as a science of mind. And I uh, came across uh, an opportunity to do this Goenka-style retreat. Um, in fact, my my uncle, who's a psychiatrist, was also doing these types of practices, and he suggested if you really want to get um, a real sense of meditation, you should do one of these because it's the real deal. And it certainly was a <laughs> ten days silent retreat. You know, men and women are separated. Um, you know, you're not you're not speaking. You don't have any distractions. You can't even write. You can only speak uh, if you have questions in the evening and. And as a 20-year-old, you know, that was profound for me, and it's mm. probably profound for every, anybody who does that because it really forces you to um, look inward. And I did, and uh, I, fa- I saw the profound, you know, effects for me personally, just developmentally, and continue to practice Vipassana-style meditation. Um, but there was no real science of, of meditation that was accepted in mainstream neuroscience. Mm. Uh, and when I was in graduate school between 99 and 2005, uh, uh, there was still a very scant amount of research on the topic. In fact, on mindfulness specifically, there was um, like 30-odd publications on the topic before I got to graduate school. And my advisor was basically you know, encouraging me not to even think about it or pursue that, that line of, 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 of research. Yeah, now I remember. I remember you saying that actually in the the TED talk that I watched of you that there were just thirty odd that there yeah that there were thirty odd um, you know uh, papers on the topic. But do you you don't mean meditation? You know, uh, all forms of meditation, just specifically mindfulness. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in fact, it was on what I'm I'm referring to uh, papers on mindfulness specifically. Right. Meditation. Yeah, there was a about. Uh, another handful, probably another 50 or so, mm-hmm. but not that many. Um, so you can certainly draw distinctions between styles of meditation practice and uh, the context from which they come from. Um, there's a whole, you know, ontological sort of ontological, you know, context or cultural context from which they originate yeah. that has been shifted or changed since, you know, either uh, um, the time of the Buddha. Um, or before Buddha, because the Hindus were practicing meditation way before Buddha was. Yeah. And yeah. so there are styles of practice that focus on concentration um, that can be sort of, you know, um, can be sort of a, an umbrella style of meditation um, across different contexts or cultures even. So the Hindus really focused a lot on cultivating samadhi and concentration and so did Buddha. He really taught. He used the breath as a focus, where a lot of the Hindus used the mantra. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, transcendental meditation came from the Hindu style of, of mantra practice, where you focused on a string of of syllables um, that had their own divine sort of spiritual uh, meaning behind them and relevance to your own path, but also in the beginning, focusing on sort of string of words is a form of concentration to sort of with what they call pratyahara or sensory withdrawal. It allows you to draw all your attention away from all the other senses that are the barrage of information that's coming at you and focus on one thing. Uh, So whether it's a a mantra or or your breath, 
Um, it's just a different object of focus, but it's still focused concentration. Mindfulness has its own origins, um, mostly in the Buddhist context. Um, but there, uh, the sort of the new wave of interest in the last decade on mindfulness, uh, really comes back to more Buddhist origins than, than Hindu, um, or anything other, any other contemplative practice really. So that, that's why I've, I've been focusing a lot on mindfulness, but, uh, I don't exclude all the other contemplative wisdom based traditions. Uh, I'm certainly interested in, in anything that can lead to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you're speaking about mindfulness, you know, and I know we, I've talked a little bit about this with Miles Neal in a previous episode because he really takes issue with this distinction between like the rigorous idea of mindfulness and, and kind of this sort of mick mindfulness that he describes, you know, ah. being sort of a like, you know, oh, just like, you know, be mindful, blah, 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 this kind of very um, folk way of thinking about it. So to get very specific, do you want to just describe, you know, what mindfulness is in terms of your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so so I contextualize it very, very specifically, um, mindfulness as a method or process, um, because there is a lot of uh, debate over operationalizing mindfulness, so either in schools of Buddhism or in contemporary Western psychological settings. Mm-hmm. Nobody has um, the uh, authoritative sort of um, uh, ability to say that I, I'm going to tell you what mindfulness is and nobody else is right. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's used in many different contexts, and I think that's the important um, point, is that if you're going to use the word, you need to just contextualize it how you're using it. So even somebody who says, you know, I do make mindfulness, call it what you want, um, in the context of therapy, um, I'm not a practitioner, but I, we do mindfulness, uh, it, what we would call mindfulness inductions. Mm. And mindfulness inductions would be a state of mindfulness, a state of being present, focused, non-judgmental, and uh, non-reactive, open, curious, accepting. And you can do that for, you know, uh, one moment to 10 minutes uh, and call that mindfulness, that you did mindfulness. And many Buddhist scholars may refer to that as the mindfulness movement because it's not, um, uh, uh, you know, more of a deeper, um, uh, intense practice that's more continuous. And that's where I draw the distinction between um, this sort of make mindful sort of state of awareness, um, and a path to reduce suffering. Um, because I, when I refer to it as a method or a process, it's a path. It's a, it's a method for a systematic method for, uh, um, of, of mental training for reducing suffering and improving human flourishing, improving the human condition. That's a huge life shift. And I think I try to incorporate both the contemporary aspects of the McMindfulness, uh, uh, you know, usage and the Buddhist model into one sort of coherent, um, package. And this package we refer to, we, that we refer to as the, as the, uh, uh, the method that, that, um, affects multiple systems. And we sort of, uh, believe that mindfulness is not just one thing. It's, when you do this whole systematic form of training, you're affecting multiple systems across the mind, the brain, and the body. And what my colleague David Silverswag and I did was we created a, a model 
that accounted for all of these systems and underlying mechanisms by which these practices that, that are involved may be working to uh, uh, fundamentally improve the human condition and lead to decreased suffering and, and flourishing. Mm. And we refer to this model as our SART model, mm. our self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence model, uh, sort of implying that what we're not trying to do is define mindfulness per se, but show how these, this systematic form of mental training can affect the self. And it does so by increasing self-awareness, increasing our awareness of our own mental habits, um, uh, moment to moment, um, increasing our ability to effectively manage our impulses and responses. You know, that's the self-regulation piece. And then self-transcendence, um, which is much more, uh, and this is also used in many different ways, but we, we contextualize self-transcendence as the development of a positive relationship between self and other that transcends the self-focused needs and increases more pro-social types of behavior like empathy. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how we see mindfulness as sort of this process um, as a form of systematic mental training to improve self-awareness, self-regulation, self-transcendence. Great. Interesting. That's very specific and awesome. <laughs> so to uh, go back a little bit, because we, we sort of left off in your story a little bit about, um, uh, so you had this experience with Vipassana, and it was, you know, obviously very transformational for you and set you on this path. But what was, what led you specifically into, you know, because there could have been, you know, a whole variety of different ways you studied this or practiced this. So what led you to the contemplative neuroscience aspect of, of, of this? I, you know, I love this question because every time I try to answer it, I, I really don't have a good answer for it because, you know, Joseph Campbell says, follow your bliss, right? You know, uh, <laughs> and yeah. that's all I, all I can do is say you follow these, always these little subtle signposts, mm -hmm. you know, along your life path. And you choose what makes, what gives you most meaning, what gives you most purpose, what most joy. And as you do that, you know, your sort of meaning and purpose sort of becomes more prominent and you move closer or you, you sort of uh, move into more sort of the micro levels of that, of that path. Yeah. And that's really what's happened to me, you know, just through time, contemplative neuroscience was emerging as a field while I was also gaining my PhD in cognitive neuroscience um, and continuing to practice meditation. And then I just had a few, uh, I think, chance opportunities to get more involved in the field that was developing. Um, it, I, I do owe a lot of gratitude to the Mind and Life Institute, um, which is a non-for-profit of started by the Dalai Lama, um, Francisco Varela, who's a neuroscientist, and Adam Engel, who's a businessman from trained at a Harvard, Medi uh, Harvard Business School. And those guys really, and, and, and I, so I, then I sort of pin it on, I blame the Dalai Lama because... Yeah, I remember this part of your TED Talk as well. Yeah, it seemed like he was very motivational and almost... Uh... Very motivational to me, but to this field, really, he, yeah. he was interested in science. Yeah. And without his interest in science, I don't think this field would have gotten so much traction. Mm. Um, and because of his interest and because of his prominence in the world, you know, people started to pay attention to these um, dialogues that were being uh, created by the Mind and Life Institute. 
um, Eastern and Western uh, uh, perspectives on mind. What is mind? It's one of the greatest questions in science today. If we try to understand consciousness, we need to understand mind. And you know, neuroscience has its own uh, very young, immature uh, model of what the mind is and how we can help people who are suffering and improve flourishing. We don't have all the answers in modern day science. But, the, but Buddhism has 3,000 years of, of, of introspect, introspection and uh, sort of inner science that have focused in a very rigorous way uh, into trying to understand the mind by um, self-observation. So putting those together is, is been, I think, it, what I refer to as the inner revolution of science. We're really getting a better idea of of what the mind is and what it does mm -hmm. and how, how using sort of a contemporary neuroscientific lens, we can better uh, investigate the mind um, and incorporate some of these Buddhist principles. So when you say a neuroscientific account of the mind, I, you know, I, I want to ask what exactly you mean by that, because, it, you know, when I think about the mind, I think about and, you know, this is my sort of own kind of philosophical objection to not what, not specifically what you're doing, but what, what some accounts of the mind where they try to reduce kind of the qualities of the mind or the experiences of the mind to brain states. And, and you know, my kind of immediate objection is just that, you know, the experience of love or the experience of reading poetry is not the same as the, the neuroscientific accounts of what's taking place in my brain. So, you know, what, what do you mean by a neuroscientific account of the mind? And is there a problematic kind of um, connection there? There is a problematic connection and as a sort of an explanatory gap between one's subjective experience that how one feels, you know, when they're experiencing great pleasures or joys or sorrows, composing a symphony, you know, just enjoying a sunset, the color of vivid blue, you know, all those sort of personal inner experiences. How do we explain that phenomena in, in a reductionistic sense? There is this big gap and they call it the hard problem in, in philosophy and the yeah. philosophy of mind for, for a reason, because it is difficult to to see a one-to-one -one, uh, relationship. In fact, if you were to take every neuron and replace it with some sort of, uh, uh, you know, silicon chip, uh, it, you know, just theoretically, if you could do that, and uh, you replace the entire brain, all like um, 86 billion neurons with all the connections, and you were able to do that, would that, would that physical uh, uh, machine have the same experience as you and would it be you and that that gap because most people would say no absolutely not that 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 takes away that human factor that 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 sort of element of of you know spirit that sort of fills the human human mind body is not there um at least that's the argument and you know we're not anywhere near that we can't replace neurons with chips it maybe We've been able to implant circuits maybe into the brain and have it interact, but there's no way to uh, physically reproduce someone's subjective experience, at least not yet. And there's arguments on both sides um, suggesting that you can do that. It would happen. And in fact, there are uh, there's whole groups of people who are uh, thinking that once uh, uh, artificial intelligence emerges, 
um, significantly enough that there will be uh, um, so this massive revolution of machines uh, against Wait, well, There have been many movies that start with that premise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think it's kind of a fear, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, um, mind is a powerful tool. And, uh, you know, we're, there is no permanent self. And this is the basic premise of all Buddhism. And I think if, uh, if we can sort of evolve as humans to sort of accept that uh, uh, finally, <laughs> um, you know, we can move a little bit beyond just this physical body and start to believe a little bit more um, uh, uh, into the capacity of the mind to, uh, uh, to provide uh, what we need um, in this world, in this reality, in this lifetime, um, to help um, reduce the suffering and just have enjoy the, the the fruits of being in this world, in this reality, and that I think is step number one. Yeah. By by focusing on how the mind and the neurobiology that's supporting mind and mental processing we can investigate how we can use those the interactions in a way to map out uh, uh, a way, uh, sort of a method for uh, not only getting feedback from what's going on in our body. You know, I'm wearing a Fitbit today. I got it as a problem. <laughs> and, I'm, and I never oh, wear a watch like, like and last time we were watching probably when I was 13. <laughs> um, I'm getting used to that. But what's interesting is that it provides data. Yeah. You know, it provides data about, you know, your body. Mm-hmm. And I think as as we emerge technologically, we're going to have much more insight into what's going on in our body um, and our brain at any moment. And having that feedback, we can work more effectively with our, with our body and start to uh, uh, just be – have a healthier – mind-body connection at all times. And so if you get angry, you know, the worst thing that can happen is to stay angry all day, you know. Um, and I talked about that in my TED Talk as well. And the, the, the fact being that your thoughts, what you put into your mind, has a direct influence on the health of your body. So if you're always having negative thoughts or you're just angry all the time, your heart rate's going to go up, your blood pressure's going to go up, your your you're not going to be as efficient at pumping blood, and that's going to lead to cardiovascular disease, yeah. you know, uh, increased stress. And that's going to also lead to depression, anxiety, all these bad things. But if you take care of your mind and body, and you're always aware of what's happening, then you're going to have this. Uh, I, I, you know, theoretically speaking, you're going to have a lot better control over how things emerge and how your body flourishes. I think that's, you know, where the science of mind and, and contemplative neuroscience um, sort of fit into helping produce a map into what's happening in mind and brain together in unity and using that map in a way to scaffold or uh, support um, the advancement of technology for feedback, and then we can use it for diagnostic purposes, mm-hmm. for therapeutic purposes. So there's a, there's there's the mind-brain 
uh, metaphor of a two-sided coin. Yeah. Many cases, what we're really talking about is two sides of the same coin. The brain and the mind are really working always together, um, and and you, it's really hard to to dissociate them. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's very exciting the work that you're doing, and and uh, you know, and one of the beautiful things about it is that you know it's putting out the the research that you're putting out is kind of um, beginning to receive enough attention that it's kind of pushing back against this logic of okay, I have these mental afflictions, and and the cultural logic is to you know prescribe myself a medication or to get prescribed a medication, and then right. you know that's it, and take a pill, and then yeah. and then here the work that you're doing is really empowering people to realize that they have you know the resources within themselves through particular practices to um, to alleviate that suffering, and at the end of the day, it's so much cheaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so much cheaper. It's so and it. You, it's not a simple thing. I mean, the one thing that I think uh, is often um, misunderstood is meditation seems like a simple form of relaxation. Yeah. You know that anybody can do and no problem, and yeah. all of our all of our problems will be gone, whisked away. <laughs> um, well, it requires fact, discipline, right? I mean, it's a disciplined process. And anybody who's tried it knows very clearly by sitting uh, with your eyes closed for extended period of time is very difficult, not only to just maintain attentional stability, yeah. but all the different thoughts that come up, you know, and uh, uh, that's the key is what thoughts are populating your mind? Because we know now that every thought that you have, every emotion that comes up is influencing how the next thought will emerge and how that influences your body, mind, and uh, how it develops together. And disease, we just know that. I mean, there's this great quote um, um, by uh, the. Um, uh, it's in oh, what's the, the the Dhammapada? You yeah. know the Dhammapada, yeah. mm-hmm. and I also shared this as well. But our life is you know shaped by our mind, for we become what we think. This is you know these are one of the best collections of teachings by the Buddha, and. If our life is actually shaped by our mind and we're becoming what we think, that's a profound statement. That means every single want and fear and expectation that we have every moment is influencing the development of our self. And if we want to develop ourself in a healthy way and our relationship to the world, then we have to take care. And and it takes effort to stabilize our mind from not letting it fly off into negative types of thoughts and feelings and emotions and expectations and jealousy and greed and all those destructive types of emotions. What is your response to, because what I hear you saying, kind of pushing back against what is another sort of prevailing mythology that I feel like there is in our culture that, you know, what we are afflicted by is genetically determined and it's sort of this weird deterministic thing. And I'm thinking of a specific person who I, I don't want to mention specifically, <laughs> but, um, you know, th- th- this person had a heart attack and, and, you know, there was, there was a whole kind of I could make a whole, you know, have a whole list of kind of things that I could have seen that might have contributed to that in terms of lifestyle and, and, and I mean, and anyway, so, so what, but, but then the response to that is that, oh, well, this is just, this is in my family and everybody's like in your family, you're, you're going to probably have this or that or blah, 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 the other thing. And so that to me, that mindset, you know, and of course I'm, you know, there is a role for genetics to play, but what is the role given also the fact that that mindset kind of um, 
it disempowers the the incentive to look at the conditions of one's life and the choices that one's making in terms of diet and activity and you know mindset. What do you? Because uh, for to me, it seems like very damaging. This like myth of genetic determinism. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important point because there are individual differences. I think that's the key here. And individual differences means we, we all we all are born with different predispositions mm-hmm. um, and certain life paths are already sort of predetermined in some way. Um, yeah, I, can, and, I mean, I can't change my hair color or my eyes. I mean, that's given. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and in the same way, there are some factors in your in your, in your uh, physiology that are going to determine risk factors for certain diseases. You saw Gattaca. Um, That's pretty accurate. You know, you sort of get categorized if we had a complete um, map of our genome and, you know, we're getting actually better and better at at doing this. We can look at the different genetic predispositions towards certain diseases. Um, Some of them are mapped better than others, like, for example, Huntington's disease. You know, you can know early on that you have the gene for uh, developing Huntington's disease, but you know it doesn't uh, present itself until late 30s, early 40s, and so you can be living your whole life without experiencing that. And then you know you have to have certain genetic counseling to know if you're mentally stable to handle that information. Right. And then by the time you're 35, 40, you're going to get this horrible wasting disease of that's going to affect your mind and body. Um, well, um, so just like um, there are different um, dispositional factors for uh, uh, development of mind through meditation practice. So different people come to the cushion at different levels of conscious awareness. Um, some may progress faster uh, in terms of gaining um, more sort of insight into their own mental habits, and some may progress much slower. In fact, Alan Wallace in this um, context, Alan Wallace is a Buddhist scholar. He, he's, uh, he said there are three types of people. Uh, one is the person who practices meditation, um, you know, a few times goes to maybe a Dharma talk or two and suddenly a profound shift happens and they, they just get it and they feel enlightened. Uh, and that's a very rare group of people. Maybe point point uh, point zero 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 five percent of the people experience that, and there's another group of people who practice for uh, uh, years and years and years on the cushion mm-hmm. and diligently, um, and eventually, piece by piece, they start to put things together and experience you know some awakening, some sort of enlightened sort of states that we can uh, try to understand but lead to uh, improved the human condition and finally there's the last type of people which is probably the most common which takes uh, lifetimes to <laughs> to basically achieve any sort of benefit womp, and, womp. <laughs> right? that's like the majority of us yeah. but the point here though related to genetics is that that we all come from different backgrounds and we're all going to have different dispositions. And some of us, it'll be easier to, um, you know, maintain a healthy lifestyle and achieve benefit from sitting practice. And others, it may never come. And people, some people sit on a cushion for 30 years and never, and are still assholes. Yeah. yeah. Why is that? And I think what <laughs> science 
unfortunately, yeah. I, unfortunately, and I, I feel that way all the time. Every time we come out of yoga class, I'm like, hmm, we just did a whole like hour and a half of yoga, and you're still like, I'm still pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no. um, but you know, science is always focused on uh, what we call the the bell curve. Mm-hmm. I've used the bell curve of averages. We lump. We're lumpers. We like to take people, you know, hundreds of people, put them into a study. We look at the average, you know, brain activity in f- over f- repeated five-minute blocks, and we say, well, over this hundred people and over. 30 repeated five-minute blocks, brain activity that we see that averages across all those people in comparison to some baseline arbitrary state is this pattern. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, that's provided a lot of insight to how the brain works um, and, and, and may provide some insight into behavior. But what we realized only recently is that um, that has no effect on individualized medicine. And that there are so many individual differences in where people are um, genetically and in terms of what their sort of nature has sort of sculpted for them. Because if you have trauma in your life, it's going to dramatically shift, you know, those genetics in in, in a negative downward spiral. Um, Meditation is going to help unravel it. Mm -hmm. um, But if you have those factors like genetic markers for cardiovascular disease or other neurodegenerative problems or behavioral experiences of, of trauma, that's going to be an uphill battle for you. Mm-hmm. And so by taking into account these individual differences, that's where science is going to help us un- better understand what practices are going to work for which people. Right. And we're going to see which genomic markers we can actually shift towards a more positive trajectory. And that is real science too. This is called epigenetics. Um, Basically, these heritable traits that you have as genetic markers can change. Mm. They change in a positive way, but they take a lot more, uh, a lot more effort, and it's going to take a lot more sort of pressure for those genomic uh, markers to shift. Can you give an example of a genomic marker that you've found shifts through these practices? Uh, Yeah. So people are starting to look at this and there's not a lot of good data, at least from the meditation science showing that meditation can shift these markers. But for example, um, people with cardiovascular disease, I think this is a a good indication. People with cardiovascular disease, well, markers for cardiovascular disease. There are some, some markers now. For example, in um, inflammatory markers, mm. the more inflammation you have in your body and brain, uh, the more likely you are uh, at risk to have a risk for developing cardiovascular disease um, in some uh, in some form or another. So you could either die of a heart attack um, due to uh, uh, just more constriction of your blood vessels, or you may have atherosclerosis, where you have buildup of plaque, uh, cholesterol, and lipids in, into your um, uh, uh, portal system, veins and arteries. And so, what we've seen is through there have been some studies suggesting that if you do a lot of these positive behaviors like exercise um, or 
um, meditation and yoga, that those epigenetic markers associated with inflammation can be reduced. Mm. So that does exist, and those that would be a, that would be a form of epigenetic um, uh, change or phenomena that some a, a biological trait or a genetic marker with a disposition towards disease is shifted through some positive behavior. Mm. And we're just learning what those genomic markers are more and more. But inflammation is a really good example because we have a, a pretty solid handle there and its connections with cardiovascular disease. Mm. Excellent. That's so interesting. Okay. So now I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I want to ask for maybe some specific examples um, or, you know, what... Or I guess I'll say I'll ask it this way: What are some of the most um, profound insights that the scientific research that you're doing has unveiled about? Um, I mean, I know you've done some work on yoga as well, um, but you know, mindfulness meditation, contemplative neuroscience, that you're, the the work that you're doing. What are some of the insights that um, um, the audience might be fascinated to hear? Yeah. So remember, I started by saying that there weren't a lot of studies on mindfulness in the right. year 2000. All right. So in, since then, in the last 15 years or so, there's been, I, I think, close to 4,000 studies. And so that's a lot of increases in the amount of research that's being done on mindfulness. However, there's big caveats there. There, Of all those studies that are, are um, claiming all these benefits, um, if you really look most rigorously um, at all the studies and try to get a better sense of what's really changing using the most rigorous standards. Um, the, the data isn't that impressive. In fact, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> um, there are some real promising findings. For example, um, of the 47,000 uh, know, studies that are out there looking at um, active controls uh, uh, for interventions on clinical symptoms, there's, um, I think, eight, what was it? Uh, I think there's 18, let's see if I can find that exactly how many, but there's, there's 47, for example, studies, I think, total, that uh, using the most rigorous standards, there was a meta-analysis done by Goyal et al., who found that of all the studies that are out there, if you took an eight-week mindfulness-based intervention, which is the standard now, a standard model for delivering mindfulness training, mm -hmm. which is 26 hours, you know, once a week, two hours of class, in-class guided practice, 45 minutes of homework a day, um, meaning lots of home practice, an all-day retreat. If you did that for eight weeks and then compared all the studies that were done using that model versus an active control, which is meaning using the most rigorous standards, we say, we want to compare this to another group who met um, to control for all these nonspecific factors of, of, of the benefits of being in a social support group and paying attention to certain information and comparing those two types of models together. What you find is that symptoms of depression and anxiety and aspects of the emotional aspects of pain are improving more significantly than uh, the active control. So that's promising. Um, although these, these comparisons also show that um, sleep, um, addiction, 
well-being, um, a lot of positive uh, factors are not actually improving any better. But the symptoms of depression, anxiety, and emotional aspects of pain are improving more significantly. So that's promising. Mm. That's from the clinical angle. From the neurobiological angle, we're able to look at you know, all the 80 different studies. Um, uh, I think you know, if you look at the – of those 4,000 studies that I said have existed in the last 15 years, there's been 21 neuroimaging studies looking at brain structure – and 80 looking at brain function. And of those ones looking at the brain, we can say that there are some consistent changes in the brain um, that are uh, suggestive of, of what is transforming um, in these practitioners because we have ideas of what these brain regions and networks are responsible for in terms of behavior. So uh, I think... You know, I've mentioned that you can reduce it down to four different brain regions to really get a sense of, you know, essence of what's changing in the brain. And I can say, you know, for this, for the, for the sake of just not repeating myself, but but being very clear that there are attentional networks, for example, that are active when we meditate. We see it when people are put into a brain scanner, an MRI machine, while they're meditating, we know there's very specific networks that are responsible for stable attention and for one of the most critical aspects of meditation practice and one of the only aspects of cognition that seems to be changing um, uh, significantly is meta-awareness. This mm. is awareness of awareness. This is what is so critical to practice. Yeah. It's insight into our where our mind is at any moment in time. This is There's one really major node of, of this network, which is right behind your forehead, called the frontal polar cortex. And that works Interesting. With- is that sort of, sort of generally related to the region of the third eye? I mean... Yes. In fact, it is with the chakras. It, yeah. uh, it is. Interesting. Right. So, yes, the Hindus may have been right in the general area yeah. of chakras, <laughs> the third eye, and what area is really responsible. In fact, between two and three million years ago, our earliest hominid ancestors, when they started to roam the savanna on two legs, uh, start to use tools, fire, language developed, something shifted, whether it was aliens that came down from, you know, outer space and sort of injected us with some knowledge, uh, or whether Wait, it just... do you think that happened? <laughs> I leave it open. Uh, you think that, you think it's a valid, it's, uh, I, I, I want to ask you this because I recently heard someone talking about this. Like, do you think it's a valid, I don't want to totally get sidetracked here, but... <laughs> I don't see why not. I mean, if there's evidence for it, something shifted. In, in our earliest hominid ancestors between two and three million years ago, so much so that our cranial capacity uh, grew um, exponentially and separated us from our bonobos. Our bonobos are the closest ancestors to us, for example, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, uh, uh, and, you know, from, if you look at the, 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 the craniums of the Australopithecus, which is our the earliest hominid ancestors um, to us, and and um, which represented human-like people, you know, hominids who were who were walking upright, who were using tools, who were doing sort of ritualistic stuff. Seemed like they had language. They were putting paintings on walls. 
Um, they were they were foraging. They were had to memorize where their food locations were. There was a huge influx of 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 of, of um, uh, cognitive functioning that needed to happen for that those types of behaviors to occur. So if it was a uh, some spontaneous evolution from I don't know eating some strange mushroom in the ground or what <laughs> or magic what, mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we just needed some psychedelics to evolve, you know. <laughs> hey, you know, Terence McKenna said that that you know that's essentially how how we developed our our mind is through you know our uh, communication through uh, or, or experimenting with with. Um, different fungi that grew in the earth that, that, that expanded our mind potential. It's very possible. There's some theories that will suggest that there's no, I don't think the evidence, um, is clear from, from that historical point of view. But what is clear is that, that our, this part of our brain is the part that evolved the most. Yeah. And it separates us dramatically from our other hominid ancestors. Yeah. In fact, there's like huge amounts of space in our frontal lobes specifically dedicated to creating connections with the rest of our brain. And those connections um, really allow us to, uh, um, you know, make the connections that are necessary um, to, uh, for, for planning um, what we call executive functioning. So planning, um, uh, meta-awareness, yeah. keeping something in mind, a task in mind while doing something else it's unfortunately what helps us multitask and at the same time uh, becomes a problem in our contemporary society because we're constantly seeking stimulation um, and so we're rapidly switching between things, our phone, our Facebook, our social media, what's going on around us. And our frontal lobes, or especially the frontal polar cortex, is really important for uh, supporting that function, but it's not always to our advantage to be constantly switching. Yeah. What what mindfulness is doing more than anything else, and what the evidence seems to be showing, both from cognitive point of view and from the biological point of view, is this part of our brain is growing in size and it's increasing in function while we meditate, and that's really important for allowing us to flexibly switch between types of processing our behaviors, types of thinking. Um, and that's critical because if you have insight and awareness, this mental awareness, awareness of awareness of what your mind is doing at any moment, then you can at least say, is this an appropriate time to be on my phone uh, or not? While you're driving, maybe not. While in conversation with somebody else, probably not. You know, and to have the impulse control to put it down, to have our conversations, to be present, that requires effort and and practice. Mm -hmm. So I think that's it's a skill that all of us are developing uh, as humans. But to be able to have the insight and the impulse control, to be able to know when to allow that great capacity of our frontal polar cortex to continually switch is something that develops through meditation practice. So I would say that part of our brain and the networks that are, are associated with this part, which is a frontal parietal network of attention. So parts of our parietal lobe help us also work together as a network. 
Uh, and those are the, the brain regions that are um, working together. So frontal polar cortex, parts of parietal lobe, what we call the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which, there we go, it's a little, I've got a brain here. So explain it since people who are listening to the podcast can't see, can't see this brain. So explain yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, they can't see the brain. Okay. So, right. So people who are not uh, seeing this, <laughs> this <laughs> what I'm trying to show is that there is a part of your brain, the frontal polar cortex, right behind your forehead, communicates with our parietal lobe, which is basically uh, above our ear. If you just go a little bit higher than our ear, it's general sort of not behind our, not the back of our head, but at the sort of top side of our head, that's a parietal lobe. Mm -hmm. And then if you were to peel off your cortex uh, from, your, uh, from your brain stem, right, the last layer of cortex that separates your, the, your cortex from your brain stem is called the cingulate gyrus. It's just a strip of gray matter, which are just neurons that help communicate information coming from your brainstem. So really important automatic, autonomic functions like respiration, arousal, but also early forms of sensory processing where your attention should shift and communicating that to the rest of your brain. It's all also modulated by that cingulate gyrus. And that cingulate gyrus in the, in the frontal part of it, it's called the anterior uh, cingulate gyrus, that is in the frontal portion of it, it works together with your frontal uh, uh, polar cortex, your parietal lobe, and one other brain region I'll, I'll just throw out there called the insula. And I'm just going to, for so those of you who can see, um, it is located, basically, there's a fold in your brain. And that's called the sylvian fissure or lateral fissure. That's here. And if you were to just pry that open, and look inside, you would see a fold of tissue. Where is it? There it is. It's a yeah. fold of tissue right there. That fold of tissue is called your insula, or insular cortex. That, your whole body's mapped in there. And in fact, parts of the, parts of the anterior, more frontal portions of that brain region, your insula, uh, may be very unique to humans. And it is really important for body awareness, awareness of what's happening internally. Not just in the body itself physically, but just um, viscerally, um, sort of intuitively, what's going on inside you and around you. So together, the insula, anterior cingulate cortex, and the frontal polar cortex, and the parietal lobes work together to provide that meta-awareness skill um, um, very efficiently and to then facilitate that, that self-regulation part, which is the impulse control. And in fact, it also contributes to this self-transcendence piece, which is dissolving the distinctions between self and other, improving your ability to put yourself in the shoes of others, to have that empathy, to understand what other people are experiencing as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's what we can infer from the data that we see at this point out of the 80 neuroimaging studies, the 20 fun the structural ones, the 4,000 studies that have talked about mindfulness in some way. That's really the take home, I think. Mm. 
In your in your research, have there been any sort of classic, you know, um, experience like classical mystical experiences? And I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about self transcendence here, and so I'm thinking sort of a form of self transcendence, which would, you know, d- the, dissolve the experience of self so much that someone has an experience of kind of oneness yep. with, you know, yeah. whatever the cosmos. Do you yeah. is that is that also in you know if you have exper- if you have seen that in your research, is that also associated with this region of the brain you're talking about? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question, um, and we are trying to put that experience on the map as well. Um, neuroscience, I think, has also been very hesitant to talk about this right. concept of enlightenment, for example, yeah. Yeah. Um, and markers of enlightenment or self-transcendence. Mm-hmm. And I would say there are clear subjective markers for what what the Buddhists or the Hindus may refer to as awakening. Um uh, markers of progress, of insight, uh, the, the Dzogchen, the Tibetan Buddhist community would call Rigpa, or um, uh, um, uh, the, the Theravadins would say um, stream entry, you know, dipping your sort of awareness into the stream of consciousness that sort of fills every, the, all, all humanity, all universe, all the cosmos, um, this greater awareness that may connect us all now this is hard to empirically demonstrate yeah yeah is that uh, the resistance to it or is it also the fact that that gets you into the territory of you know religious ideas that scientists are sort of you know wary to discuss it's a little bit of both yeah. absolutely um but you know i think if you are you can operationalize these markers and reproducibly uh have them experienced by practitioners across contexts and capture what it looks like, then there's no, there's, there, that's, that's evidence. Yeah. And so that's what we're striving to do. And so we've created actually a paper with David Yadin and uh, Jonathan Haidt that just came out in a review of general psychology that, that, that operationalizes this experience of self-transcendence. And in fact, there is this dissolution of self um, this sort of nihilistic component of self-dissolving that we that we try to operationalize, and then this sense of unity, like you mentioned, yeah, feeling yeah. one with everything, and that's a that's a that's a subjective state that a lot of people report having, mm-hmm. either through some drug-induced state or through meditation or contemplative experience across different religious contexts. Doesn't matter if it's Judeo-Christian, Muslim, or otherwise. Yeah. Um, people who have spiritual experiences, or whether it's lovemaking, or whether it's in nature, people report having these types of uni- unity experiences. Yeah. So, what does that look like? Um, we don't have a reproducible substrate for that yet. We have some indication that it does involve uh, this frontal parietal network. Mm-hmm. There are, there have been um, uh, some evidence categorizing that experience as what we refer to as non-dual experience. Non-dual meaning there's no duality of subject and object. Right. Most of our reality is there's subject, ourselves, our experience, and an object, something else out there, not me. Me, not me. But when you have these spiritual experiences, that subject-object distinction dissolves into a non-dual experience. And this is sometimes referred to in Dzogchen, Tibetan Buddhism as Rigpa. Uh, we've set up a few other um, 
uh, people, a few other cultures or contexts have referred to it as uh, Zen, it's Kensho, or um, uh, Chitta, or yeah. Bodhi, like just experiencing this, this sort of element of awakening for a moment it could be fleeting. Um, in a tradition, in a, uh, one, one teacher that we were studying uh, is Shinzen Young. Shinzen is a uh, more contemporary Western teacher, but who incorporates elements of Japanese Shingon and Zen together, as well as uh, uh, the uh, uh, Burmese style of noting and labeling practice. And through his methods, he refers to that experience as gone. (laughs) (laughs) You're not here. (laughs) Right. So um, simply you can say, like, here's an object, a little ball, a little yoga ball. And as it arises into your visual consciousness, it arises and it can also pass. Mm. And in Theravadan tradition, this arising and passing is a very traditional way of being able to train your mind to note and label arising and passing of mental objects. And the idea is that the passing and gone, the absence of, is a a sort of um, a, uh, an analog for larger aspects of all of reality dropping away yeah. and being gone. So Shinzen makes a distinction between gone with a little g and gone with a big g. And we had a few people experience this gone state in a, with a big g in the scanner. And so we still have trying to figure out you know, using different methods to uh, interpret what we found, um, trying to map the the exact time that it happened mm-hmm. um, in comparison to what was happening before. And what we do see is typically just increases in activity in that frontal polar region mm-hmm. um, more than any other uh, uh, marker. Which is interesting that, you know, in the experiential domain, it might be a kind of sense of, I don't know, nothingness or an experience of, like you say, being gone. Others, you know, reported as being, there being more of, um, uh, of an activity there. But it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, in, in, in the subjective experience, something that might be experienced as a kind of absence or, you know, not being here in the brain, there is this profound activity that you're talking about, you know? Right. I should say one other thing that's interesting that comes online very strongly for, for, for most meditators, and this doesn't depend too much on how much practice you have, but that you have a significant, well, I should say you, if you have, if you reach a significant amount of practice, say a thousand hours, which is, you know, a decent amount of formal practice. Um, uh, you start to engage a part of your um, subcortical areas called the basal ganglia, um, specifically a part called the uh, putamen, which uh, is really active during skill-based learning. So when you ride a bike, it's active in trying to train your body and mind to communicate efficiently so you don't have to think about it. It's like being in the zone Mm -hmm. in a sport or um, flow states. Yeah. When you're in this sort of flow state, you stop thinking, but yeah. your body is doing. Mm-hmm. You're just doing. And that's why I love Nike for their <laughs> ability to capture that one, that perfect 
metaphor for being in the flow, being in the zone. Just do it because you're really just doing. You're not thinking. You're not doing anything else but doing. You're yeah. being. Yeah. And that there's a brain substrate for that. And you see that also active in these more non-dual states as well. But I think it's still it's still early um, uh, to say definitively that we have pinned down a substrate for this non-dual state. It's, yeah. I think it has to be reproducible um, across conditions and, and contexts. So we have to get more subjects in the scanner and yeah. look at the physiology as well and see what, what's happening um, uh, in, in the periphery too. Want to see what's Are you always looking for volunteers or is it sort of more of a controlled process like that? No, we have one initiative called Mapping the Meditative Mind, which is always looking for, for volunteers. And we have a pretty large database that we're collecting oh, um, to bring people down here at Vanderbilt and put them in the scanner. So that's, put them in the scanner. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So this has been a really fascinating conversation. And thank you so much with, you know, for sharing all this amazing work that you're doing. One of the things that before we close out, I wanted to ask you, you know, from my um, obviously non-trained, untrained as a scientist perspective, the work that you're doing looks extremely rigorous and, and, and you know, not messing around. But I'm curious if you've encountered um, any resistance to this kind of research within the wider scientific community. You know, what is the – because, of course, you know, we have kind of a – the kind of orthodox or traditional way of doing science or looking at um, whatever psychology. So, um, so I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on that. If you've encountered any kind of, you know, resistance by, uh, you know, I guess I'll call it the orthodoxy for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, there's definitely skeptics and that's okay. I think having skeptics, it makes the science stronger. Yeah. Um, and I, and I and I value every bit of skepticism, and as long as there's clear, articulate comments about the methods or yeah. or the results, because what we're trying to do is rigorous science. Yeah. And you know, over the last decade, the science has just been getting better, but it's still there's a lot of gaps. Um, but there's there's evidence you know that you can't argue with. For example, when someone does a non-referential compassion meditation, and in, in, in who is a very advanced meditator. You see a dramatic increase in uh, uh, 40 to 70 hertz uh, brain activity, electrical activity in your brain dramatically shifts in amplitude and frequency very fast. And this, you can't argue with that data. It's very clear. Yeah. And we're starting to see um, a lot of different markers like front, frontal midline theta activity for advanced meditation. These are, it's hard data. It's reproducible. Um, you can't argue with that. And in yeah. fact, the NIH had a National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And in 2014, I believe, they changed the name through Barack Obama's uh, initiative uh, to focus on brain science. They changed the name to National Center for Complementary and Integrative uh, Health, NCCIH. That's the new center. They, that's a huge shift. It's subtle. But what they're saying is that a lot of the practice, so I'm in an integrative medicine clinic. That's where I reside. Yeah. Um, that means we practice yoga, meditation, uh, um, acupuncture, um, physical therapy, um, psychotherapy that incorporates mindfulness, all in one clinic. And it's an integrative health approach uh, to uh, uh, disease dysfunction and in a prophylactic way for improving well-being yeah um 
the reason why it was complementary and alternative before was that there wasn't a strong evidence base for these practices. So they had to say it was complementary to traditional Western approaches or mainstream medicine. What we realize now is that there, as we create an evidence base to support these practices, and in, in fact, the American College of Physicians just put out a statement uh, about a few months ago saying that first line of, of first line approach to dealing with low back pain mm. has to be an integrative one. Yeah. Yoga, meditation, acupuncture before opiates. Okay, so main- that's sort of the that's sort of the the standard way or the traditional way of going about it is just to prescribe them oh, something. Exactly, opiates, 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 opiates was was mainstream, oh and what gosh. we're realizing is opiates are not the best. Yeah, way. and bed rest, <laughs> bed rest too, and which is fact, like the opposite of what they need, isn't it? Bed that's rest. Right. So these days, it's at physical therapy, occupational therapy. You know, doing doing some. Uh, you know, light stretching or, you know, under the guidance of a physical therapist, working with the pain a bit more rather than numbing it is yeah. much more effective, what you realize. Yeah. And doing, you know, light stretching with your body, uh, like yoga and meditation, breathing techniques to, to not let the emotion tense up around the pain really is much more effective. And that's part of this whole trend of integrative medicine that's happening here. It's just good medicine now. It's just good medicine. So you can't really argue with that. Yeah. Um, you can still argue with enlightenment uh, and finding the neural correlates of enlightenment because that's a little bit harder to put empirical data on. But, you know, we're just using the scientific lens uh, to do that just like anybody else could. And I, I think that that maintains the rigor of the science. And so, you know, that's that's the best we can do. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, that's been super. This has been really interesting, David. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I just want to mention to What's that? It was a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, it's a pleasure meeting you. And um, for those listening, um, David is actually going to be giving a talk in our upcoming conference, uh, Radical Therapies, which is taking place July 14th through the 16th. Um, Let me see if I have his talk title right here. Um, um, Pulling it up. Actually, while I find it, David, why don't you um, tell the audience where they can find out a little bit more about you if anyone who wants to check out your research or um, yeah, look up sure. the institute that you're involved in. I know I mentioned it at the beginning, but if you want to give any more kind of details, website info, that sort of sure, stuff. Sure, sure. Um, well, you can find much more detail about um, our work at contemplativeneurosciences.com. Um, and, you know, from there, you know, we're at the Osher Center uh, for integrated medicine. There are now six different Osher centers for integrated medicine across the world. Wow. Um, one here, one at Harvard, one at Northwestern, one at UCSF, and now, uh, some new ones that are emerging, um, as well as one in Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And you can find, uh, there's a great a resource, oshercenter.org, um, or, uh, you can go find the Osher Center, um, information at the um, uh, and Vanderbilt, you can just look up vanderbilthealth.com slash Osher to find uh, information about Osher. But contemplativeneurosciences.com has everything. You can find Contemplativeneurosciences.com. All right, great. And then I found that name of that talk. The talk he's uh, David is giving at the conference is called Contemplative Neuroscience, Past and Present Perspectives for the Future Science of Mind. So um, if you want to sign up for that, you can just head to radtherapies.embodiedphilosophy.com. All right. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure chatting and I will speak to you soon. Yes, likewise. Great to meet you.
Okay to be with you. you.